Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Ferrazzi is a best-selling author, award-winning speaker, investor, philanthropist, and executive team coach who helps teams transform enterprises. As founder and chairman of Ferrazzi Greenlight and its Applied Research Institute, he coaches executive teams in top organizations to achieve transformative outcomes by harnessing what he calls radical adaptability. He is recognized as one of the world's most sought-after executive team coaches. Keith is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Who's Got Your Back, Never Eat Alone, Lead Without Authority, and Competing in a New Work World. He was formerly the chief marketing officer and head of sales at Deloitte Consulting and Starwood Hotels. In this podcast, he shares results from a 2,000-person study into how organizations have adapted to the COVID crisis. And he shares specific ways in which the COVID crisis is transforming the nature of work, why we should not be thinking of remote work as just remote work, but think bigger and look at the opportunity represented by asynchronous work, ideas for leveraging the crowd in your company to design better strategies, and a simple five-minute exercise that you can put in place to help ensure you don't get blindsided by the next unexpected disruption. Ladies and gentlemen, Keith Ferrazzi. Keith, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. It is great to get to meet you in person after reading and following you for so long. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks so much, Kaihan. And I'm excited about your audience, particularly it's such a critical audience in our transformation of enterprises. We appreciate you speaking to them. So we want to get to know you a little bit personally first. So if you could complete this sentence for me, it could have nothing to do with your work, just you personally. If you really know me, you know that. Oh, that's beautiful. If you really know me, you know that as much as I'm a ball-busting accountability junkie, I am also very comfortable and embrace vulnerability and intimacy in the workplace. Why is that important? For any of us working in what is now complex matrix organizations, where frankly, even the CEO is challenged with achieving things within the paradigm of their authority, we all have to start learning how to navigate and work without authority. And that means that you have earned permission to lead other people. That bridge to open that is not just a logical bridge of intellect or insight. There's an empathetic bridge of human connection and trust. That's critical in working relationships when you are working and navigating across a matrix. So it is critically important that you can quickly show up in a discussion and be a human, not just a role. The ability to aggressively share vulnerability and openness and humility bonds people to you and builds trust quickly, which you need to influence. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. That's the basis of the influence you have when you don't have formal influence. One of the values that we look for for the chief strategy officers that join our community is this idea of smart enough to be humble. Love that. I love that phrase. And by the way, smart enough to be humble is also just being curious. Right, right. If you're smart enough to be humble, you're basically saying, I'm going to lean into the I don't know because that's where breakthroughs happen. I love that. Smart enough to be humble. Beautiful. 
it seems it takes some courage, some confidence to be able to say, I don't know. Early in my career, I had to know. If I didn't know, it was something wrong with me. One of the things in the new book we find is that there is a beautiful possibility of crowdsourcing insights that it's easy to say, do you know or do you not know? Should you know or should you not know? But if we're wanting to be truly breakthrough, truly transformative, truly crashing through the old paradigms into new ones, then there's no single one of us that could know enough. And in that way, you don't even have to say that you're subpar by not knowing. What you are is you're curious and you believe that the wisdom of the crowd, the crowdsource, the insights in multiple constituencies are going to create the real breakthrough innovations. Then you say, we need to be more inclusive. This is where inclusion really lands around innovation. And if you believe that inclusion lands in innovation, one of the things we're never going to go back to, at least I hope, which is small, tight groups of people trying to make fundamentally breakthrough innovative discussions as opposed to crowdsourcing. So for instance, let's look at business planning. One of the chapters in the book around collaboration showed Unilever turning upside down its business planning process, where the business planning process used to start with a navigation between the CFO and the CEO on what the numbers should be. Then there would be a negotiation with the executive team and some tweaking, and then it would be cascaded out to the world, to the regional GM, the solution GMs. They decided to turn that on its head because remote and hybrid work allowed it. And they started with a crowdsourcing exercise where they were in group town halls of the top 300 leaders, break people into breakout rooms, open Google Docs, asking questions like, where are there growth opportunities that we don't see today that should be a fundamental part of our growth next year? As a result of crowdsourcing the growth possibility, that source of input wasn't just the strategy department doing market research studies. It came from the ground of the organizations. What I highly advise is that the strategists of the world need to recognize that it's not just a research study and a McKinsey support that's going to tell you what the future is. But I believe that the wisdom of many of those research studies and the wisdom of the McKinsey support is embedded in your organization if you'd listen. And how do you listen? Through these crowdsourced hybrid dialogues with people, which give you the ideas. And that was breakthrough for you. Yeah, it's fascinating because those hypotheses that the research is based on are often conceived of in that small room with consultants, the Deloitte's or the McKinsey's. And and this is a question I ask all of our participants, and I always get a different answer. What's your definition of strategy? It's a great question. In our business, we coach executive teams. So we're in the room of an executive team over a period of six to nine months, at least once a month. And we curate and we facilitate the transformation meeting. So at a place like Mary Barra's organization at General Motors, we're in there and the chief strategy officer is in there. So I've seen how strategy is defined in a number of companies. And it's interesting. Sometimes they are at the center point of all research and data of trends and insights. And interestingly enough, having been a former chief marketing officer myself at Deloitte, I was chief marketing officer in Starwood. I also had that competence in my organization as well, which is the insights group. But I've also seen heads of strategy be the acquisitions lead in some businesses. So you're asking somebody who has a bit of an advantage in that I worked with hundreds of executive teams and I've seen the role of chief strategy officer and I've seen it done so differently every time. So I don't have a consistent vision of it. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. What I can say is this. I wrote an article for Harvard Business Review about the role of the chief marketing officer. Spencer Stewart came out with a study that showed the chief marketing officer was turning over repeatedly at higher velocities. And they asked me why. And my point was the role of the CMO is the chief growth officer and is responsible for leads, brand brand, insights, CRM and marketing-based technologies could be responsible for digital strategies. So I went through all those things and I was like, there is no human capable of having the wisdom to guide all of those things. So at best, the CMO is the Sherpa of growth. Now, when a CMO thinks that they are the owner of those things, 
you're going to lose. When the CMO thinks that the Sherpa of those things, the humble host, the servant of those things, and the seeker of where the individuals who should be a part of the co-creative group solving those problems, now all of a sudden you're going to win. Because number one, you'll flourish in terms of the representation of insights and competencies, but you'll also not be getting into these ego turf battles where you're claiming to own this shit. And in reality, you're dropping the ball on five of them because there's no way you can own it all. And I would say the same thing to strategy. What is your North Star for strategy? Maybe are they the Sherpa of growth? I think the chief strategy officer role is where the chief marketing officer role was maybe two decades ago. It's still not quite defined. And as you said, different companies use that role for different things. And there's a great diversity. Talk to us about what this pandemic has meant in your new book, you did 2,000 interviews and you looked at how organizations are adapting. What I get from your case is, hey, we shouldn't go back. We should go forward. Tell us about that. The book got created because I was scared to death that we would crawl out of the rubble and go back to old ways of working. I was so tired of hearing people say, when are we going back to work? Oh my God, I could pull out my hair. Because I have been coaching teams for 20 years and I've recognized and noticed that the old ways of working weren't working. We were clinging by our fingertips in a volatile, world to old ways of working, which were still in silos, still turf-oriented. It was bullshit. I've been coaching to transform organizational behavior and allowing people to work more effectively in networks for 20 years now. And I was excited about the opportunity we could finally blow that up. So that was the premise of the book. And this was before the pandemic. Before the pandemic. Yeah, this has been your career. All the stuff that we saw in our research, 2,000 people weighed in on their best practices in a post-pandemic world, and there's no other critical data set like that anywhere. And so we've crowdsourced it. No one person got it right, but everybody got some part of it right. So we crowdsourced the methodology into this book. That's why you should buy the book. And I'll give your strategists an interesting insight. So I sat in a very large company's executive team meeting, three days before the pandemic, the 13th of March. And COVID was five minutes of the agenda. It was a thing to consider and watch. This company had operations in China. And I'll tell you, that was not surprising. Most businesses were caught on their heels on March 13th, going remote, except Rick Ambrose at Lockheed Space, who does not have an operation in China. But he had a process that I would highly recommend all of you strategists do. This is going to be worth this podcast and recognize it's one of dozens and dozens of tips like this that you should be getting out of the book. This exercise is called the foresight period of the meeting. But here it is. Convince your CEO to have a five-minute exercise once a month. Now, assign to every member of the executive team a vantage point to look at risk and opportunity. Let's say the CMO is going to look at risk and opportunity from a competitive standpoint. The sales lead is going to look at shifts in customer preferences. The CFO is going to look at macroeconomic policy. You as a strategist can look at something in the white space. Your CISO is going to be looking at environmental risks. And then in five minutes, you just say to the team, who has something that is a big enough risk or a big enough opportunity that you're seeing that we should move to an analysis meeting. So Rick Ambrose had that five-minute meeting. He ended up identifying that somebody on his team read a blog about this thing in China. And December, they went to an analysis meeting in January, and they basically said, interesting, but we're not going to do anything about it. They revisited it in the early February analysis meeting, and they moved it to planning right then. They went fully virtual in February. Now, imagine this. There's a large bank that had a strategic planning department. The woman who was running it came from the government and had run one of the major divisions after 9-11. So major assess rate, and they knew exactly what was going to happen, but the executive team didn't act on it because it wasn't 
co-created. If you're a strategy department and you think it's your job to answer these questions outside of the co-creation of your executive team, you're going to lose so big. You need to earn the right to have that five minute a month. That's all you need. Then you can have your hour and a half analysis and planning meetings after it. But if you get that five minutes, it's a small bite at the apple you're asking for. It's a beautiful process and you will now have a prominent component and you will be co-creating with your peers in the C-suite. And you may not even be a peer to the C-suite. You might report into one of the COOs, but now you're a peer by sherping that process. And that's in the chapter called Foresight. Fascinating, because we think of foresight as seeing or not seeing the leading indicators, the data. But what you're saying is just the data is not enough because we have this human element of creating or absorbing or validating that this is data that we should be thinking about. And so this foresight, it fits into your model in your new book, those four elements. The book is divided into two sections. In the first section, we crowdsourced, what does it mean to be a great leader in a post-pandemic world? Foresight, we have to be looking around corners, but it's not just your job as strategists, folks. This is where you need to let go and let go of the control of owning this bullshit. You are sherping everyone in the organization, crowdsourcing, insight generating, right? So that's foresight. Next piece is agility. Agile is the new operating system for organizations. Of course, IT organizations get it. Project management teams get it. But you need to bring agile into how we're managing all critical projects in the executive team and beyond. The next piece is what I've been talking about around collaboration and inclusion. How do we move to crowdsourcing? How do we move to hybrid? How do we fundamentally think differently? We gathered so many amazing best practices that we actually created a 90-minute workshop just focused on the best practices for teams to thrive in hybrid. One of the biggest things that we came up with is the shift from synchronous to asynchronous meetings. We don't recognize hybrid is a two-dimensional access. Time is on one. We're going to collaborate together at the same time, or we're going to collaborate asynchronously. We think that the hybrid question is remote or physical, but it's not. It's remote, physical, asynchronous, and synchronous. Because all we did was we moved from physical to remote, and we stayed on that left-hand side of the quadrant only. We did not develop the instincts, the habits, the rituals, the practices of doing asynchronous. Fewer than 15% of corporations do asynchronous well. Now, if you unleash asynchronous collaboration, you can reduce the number of meetings, increase the number of inputs. You can increase psychological safety because people have time to think when they do asynchronous collaboration versus right on the spot. So many amazing things you can do in asynchronous collaboration. We actually created an entire workshop just around how do you shift companies' cultures in this hybrid world up and down what we call the collaborative stack. So it's not just remote, hybrid, or in-person. You got to add asynchronous to the mix, and now you've really changed the culture of your company. What are some tools or practices or platforms that you see work asynchronously? We work with Slack and sometimes replace a meeting with that, but practically, what do you see work? Slack is really a much better tool to use than email and text, et cetera, because collaborations stay in channels, et cetera. The big thing I would say is collaborative document sharing is critical, specifically a collaborative document that I call a decision board. I'll give you a few use cases. One large pharmaceutical company started using a document where they put out to the entire company and they said, we are all overwhelmed. What projects should we stop doing? And they crowdsourced it with hundreds of leaders. And they looked at it and the thread said, what should we stop? What challenges would stopping that create? Who should we talk to about this? And then once they all looked at it, they debated each other. Well, we can't stop this. Here's the challenge it would create. If we stop this, what about this? So now we had this huge collaboration in the cloud and the data that we got back was extraordinary and candid and clear. They ended up landing the plane with a very clear set of wheedled down initiatives. Other thing is risk. I saw an IT department ask its entire organization, several thousand 
thousand people in these documents. What technological risks do you see in the next six months that we might not be seeing? Just genius. Or ideas. I saw one manufacturing company that's retooling its manufacturing. It was slow in retooling, asked the question, what are some solutions for our retooling challenges? The head of manufacturing would have sent it to 12 people. It ended up getting sent around to like 35 people. And the people that had the insight, only two of which were in the original 12. The meeting they had to land the problem actually was only six people. So you got foresight, agility, and this is around inclusion. And then you've got resilience is the fourth one. Is that right? Foresight, agility collaboration and inclusion, and then the last one is resilience, which is a leader needs to fundamentally awaken to the recognition that the team owns each other's energy and that you own the team's energy. And there's a curation of that. We did a ton of research in a partnership with Weight Watchers and Headspace and a bunch of other companies. And then the second half of the book talks about how do you apply that to reinventing business models, which very few companies did. Everybody was patting themselves in the back. Interesting enough, 85% of CIOs said they reinvented their business model. And I'm like, bullshit. What you did is you digitally things. That's not reinventing your business model, but really this idea of how do we use all of this insight to reinvent your business model. I'm working with an architecture firm right now. They really have to think about reinventing their business model. Workforce redesign is a chapter looking at all the ways in which we're redesigning our workforce. And then finally purpose, which was so powerful to see the organizations that were thriving really were leaning on and relying on purpose. And it was so powerful up and down the organization. When you had a shared purpose, you knew that people were making decisions and taking risks in alignment, even if the old authority structure wasn't present. Did those organizations already have a purpose or did they evoke a purpose? Nobody found or reinvented purpose that I saw, but it was the ones who had had a strong purpose that I found really was powerful during that period of time. Well, I've got so many questions for you, but I know that we're reaching the top of the hour. Two final questions. Is there something that you didn't get to share with us that you want to share? And the second question is, how can people connect with you, follow you, and learn from you? Thank you. Instagram, LinkedIn is probably our most professional place. But let me say this for all of you. We've created a video guide for the book with 10-minute videos for every chapter that you can use to prompt your team on how to rethink the way they work in this post-pandemic world using all the best practices. You can get it at radicallyadapt.com. Radicallyadapt.com. Got it. And you can go there and say, I bought the book. Let me have the video series. This audience of chief strategy officers and heads of strategy, this is the book that was built for you. I promise. This is great. Well, thank you for writing it. Thank you for sharing insights with us and arming us with these tools to be able to apply it using our informal influence without power. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about being introduced to this amazing group. Thank you, Keith. Thank you for being here. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.